The reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, and beginning at chapter 2 and verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nason, in the twentieth year of King Ataxaxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is, it, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servants have found favor in his sight, let him, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobias the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the troubles we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobias the Ammonite official, 
and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will still start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Aubrey, and good morning, everyone. Uh, please do keep that chapter open. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, if you were here last week, uh, Dan did a great job in opening up the setting, the context for this wonderful story of Nehemiah from chapter 1. In the uh, memoirs which we are looking at, uh, the context was explained by Dan, and on the screen you'll see it was a crisis with several elements. Uh, On the one hand, we know that God's people had been taken away from Jerusalem out into exile. They were away from home. They were dispirited and demoralized. Nehemiah the Jew was with them, and he had risen to a prominent position as a civil servant in the court of Artaxerxes. The second element of the crisis, of course, was that Jerusalem, God's city, was in ruins. And we saw in chapter 1 that when Nehemiah heard that news of the collapse of his city, he was distraught. And the reason for his concern was not so much the disgrace of the people, but what that represented. And that's the third thing, God's name was dishonored. This city, Jerusalem, this temple represented God's name. And so if the city was in ruins... God's name and God's reputation were being dishonored. And we also saw in chapter 1 the lovely prayer, which takes up the bulk of chapter 1, where Nehemiah looked to the Lord for help, and it included a fantastic promise. It's verse 9 of chapter 1, and you'll see it on the screen. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And Nehemiah was ideally placed to take action there in the court of Artaxerxes. So he begins to pray and to plan. And here in chapter 2, the story shifts from Susa, Persia, to Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, but particularly to rebuild the people of God. And there are very... Uh, important themes embedded in the chapter which are also very important for God's people today, for us too. Let me give you the first. It is depending on God's help. Um, One of my heroes is William Wilberforce, who was a great politician and social reformer. And uh, you may remember that uh, he was a significant player in Parliament in ending the slave trade uh, in the British Empire. He was also a committed Christian, but he was a very interesting leader. He was not the independent, arrogant type of leader. He was very dependent. In fact, we're told that uh, William Wilberforce had a small stone which he put in his shoe so that as he walked along, he had this constant reminder to pray. Every step was a reminder to depend on God's help. And if there is one great value in facing challenges 
or demanding situations in our lives, it is because we are forced to hold on to God, to depend on Him. And I think often God takes us through these difficulties, as He did Nehemiah and the people, in order to bring our self-confidence to an end and to teach us this kind of dependence. Well, we see this all the way through Nehemiah's memoirs. Uh, Last week in chapter 1, there's verse 4, which says this, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And as we tip into chapter 2, exactly the same spirit is there. And Nehemiah is confronted by the king. He's asked why he's sad, and then he's asked what he wants. And we have the simple phrase in verse 4 of chapter 2, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Um, This principle of depending on God's help is so important for us when we face all kinds of challenges in our lives and indeed in the life and mission of the church. It's very easy to be overcome by the problems that we face, but the big central lesson, I think, perhaps of the whole book is the importance of truly depending on God. Um, I quote another leader. This is Abraham Lincoln, a former U.S. president. I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. Nowhere else to go but God. It's the kind of expression one would hope contemporary U.S. presidents and British prime ministers might also have in their minds. And it's a basic attitude for the Christian life, a prayerful dependence on God day by day and hour by hour. In fact, in the story here, Nehemiah would have been weeping and fasting and praying week after week, as we're going to see. Uh, He was an active leader, he was an entrepreneur, and yet he was dependent on God. He's sometimes called a leader from the knees up. And that leads to the second thing, and that is waiting for God's time. Because as we enter chapter 2, you'll see in verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is four months later from chapter 1. And he had prayed and prayed and prayed for God's help during those four months. And now everything depended on God's timing. What's impressive, I think, about uh, Nehemiah and his particular disposition is that despite his activism, there is this willingness to wait for God's time to answer the prayer he had given in chapter 1. Any premature action on his part could well jeopardize the entire enterprise. Well, week after week passed until eventually a day arrived when King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah why he appeared so sad. And Nehemiah was ready to respond to the questioning which followed. You can see the very carefully crafted answer in verse 3. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire? And so the king asked him, what do you want? And you can see from verses 5 to 9, he was completely ready. He knew everything he needed to carry out the task once he got back home to Jerusalem. 
He was able to describe the resources he needed, the protection he needed to do the job. He was waiting for God's time, when God would open the king's heart. And Nehemiah was then ready to take his responsibility. His praying was significant in depending on God. He'd also done his work in knowing what he needed to do once that opportunity arose. Well, as I say, these uh, four months of waiting for an activist like Nehemiah must have been quite excruciating. And there's no doubt that these waiting times that occur in Christian discipleship are sometimes the most difficult times in our lives. We've made our prayer requests. We perhaps repeat and repeat our dependence on God for his action. And yet somehow the delays seem to be extremely painful. We think that God should answer our prayer requests immediately. Um, I know many of you in the congregation, and I think many of you would say the same as me, that as you walk with the Lord over many years, you begin to see the wisdom in God's timing. You look back and you discover God's time is best. We also discover these waiting times in the Christian life can sometimes be the moments when God can do the work in us which he wants to do. Well, this had been happening during Nehemiah's four months of prayer, and it's in this context, these four months of praying, that we should see that little prayer in verse 4 that I mentioned just a moment ago. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. It used to be called an arrow prayer, or it's like a, a very quick tweet, in fact, where he's saying, Lord, and then he answers the prayer. Now, I think uh, he answers the king. It seems to me it's very similar to the non-verbal signals that we have in some of our relationships. So, for example, my wife Margaret only needs to raise her eyebrow in a room of people, and I get the message. She's saying something about my behavior. And in fact, when people live together for a long time and they're talking together for a long time, you can use those kind of shortcut signals. And it's exactly the same with Nehemiah. He was able to pray and answer precisely because he had had these months of praying and waiting and grieving and appealing to God to act. It was effective because it grew out of a life of prayer. And he knew this was the moment for action. This was the time when God would fulfill the prayer. In fact, the fact that it is God's time is signaled very clearly in verse 8 of the passage. It's also on the screen. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. In fact, it must have been the gracious hand of God because this was a reversal of the king's foreign policy. Artaxerxes had previously forbidden the people to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But now he'd made a political U-turn. God was at work in this king. It was the Lord, the God of heaven, who could change the heart of this autocratic king of Persia and reverse the policy. The door was now open for Nehemiah to return home and start the building project. I think it's True to say that this aspect of God's action and God's timing is true in our lives as well. He's able to do this in our lives. He's able to intervene in nations and in amongst international powers. I think it's the case that many of us struggle with the bewildering questions which surround the, the challenge of evil 
in our society, or perhaps the apparent delays in God's action in our lives, or our church, or our family, or whatever it may be. So we need to hold on to this, the priority of God's time. Depending on God's help, waiting for God's time, and thirdly, trusting in God's control. For Nehemiah, it was now time to return home to Jerusalem and begin the work in in, uh, rebuilding the walls. Um, He'd asked the king for supplies in the verses that open the chapter. He'd asked for protection, and now he made the journey back from, uh, what was Iran, through Iraq, up the Mesopotamian Valley, down through Damascus, and into Jerusalem. And you'll see as he arrives there, verses 12 and 13, he begins this very discreet nighttime reconnaissance. It says in those verses that he examined the walls which had been broken down, the gates which had been destroyed by fire. He was assessing the situation which God had called him. He hadn't rushed into action. He wanted to be realistic about what challenges lay ahead. Um, It's estimated the circumference of the walls was something between one and a half and two and a half miles. Um, That uh, old city, though, as he tried to go round it, was so destroyed, the walls were so uh, uh, out of shape, the big uh, boulders had even rolled down into the valley, that he could only make part of the journey, probably just the southern section of the wall. He says in verse 14 he couldn't even continue on horseback. It was so bad as he looked at the blocks that needed to be reassembled, the mountains of rubble that he faced. He was counting the cost before building the tower, which is what Jesus commands us to do. And the turning point in the chapter is all to do with Nehemiah's trust in God's control. If we go down to verses 17 to 20, he's now encouraging his fellow workers. He gives these great motivational speeches uh, in, in his memoirs, and this is one of them. And uh, in verse 18, he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. The dispirited people in Jerusalem certainly needed more than the power of positive thinking. Their hearts and their minds needed to be lifted up to see what God could do. They needed to trust God's control. So what Nehemiah was doing was turning them from verse 17, the trouble and disgrace, to verse 18, the gracious hand of our God. They needed to see a different story, have a different perspective on all of the rubble which surrounded them. In fact, we're not only told about the terrible state of the walls and the challenge of rebuilding in chapter 2, we're also introduced to another challenge which is going to be unfolded in the next few chapters of Nehemiah's memoirs, and that is the opposition that we're going to face. And Nehemiah hints at this in verse 10, again it's on the screen, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And this is because Nehemiah was in danger of upsetting the balance of power. And so Judah's neighbors 
had a vested interest in Jerusalem remaining weak for political reasons, perhaps for economic reasons as well. And in verses 19 and 20, just a bit further down, you see the kind of confrontation which Nehemiah and God's people faced. It's even more direct, uh, again mentioning his enemies who more or less surrounded Jerusalem. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Well, this kind of opposition and mockery and hostility was just a trailer for the main movie, which we're going to see in the next few chapters. And indeed, we see all the way through Christian history, this growing opposition campaign against God and against his people. In fact, what's really interesting about these uh, verses, and I'd only realized it uh, in preparing for this this morning, is that there is underlying the chapter a conflict between good and evil. Um, So first of all, if you think about evil, Andrew will just put up a slide where it shows you that several words actually come from the root, evil. So Nehemiah was looking sad. It's mentioned three times, verses 1 to 3. That actually has the same semantic root. It means evil. Uh, The word for trouble, Jerusalem faced trouble, verse 17, trouble and disgrace. That also is from the same root, evil. But the next uh, little sequence, verses 6 and 7, where it says it pleased the king, that means it was good to the king. And then in verses 8 and 18, we have the good hand of God. And then in verse 18, it says they began the good work. Actually, literally, it is they began the good, the good thing. So you see these contrasts between evil and good. In fact, it's summarized best in verse 10 on the next slide. There's the contrast in one verse. It displeased or it disturbed the opponents. That really means it was evil to them. By contrast, Nehemiah was concerned for the welfare of the Israelites. That means they're good. So underlying the chapter is this conflict of good and evil, and it's all the way through the Nehemiah story. It's no wonder that Nehemiah stressed the work in which we are involved is God's work. It's this shift of perspective which is really needed if we're disheartened by the rubble that we see around us in our culture or even in the church or if we are intimidated by the opposition which we Christians are increasingly facing. The fact is, to be a Christian today is no longer neutral. It immediately sets us into this kind of conflict. It's now estimated that uh, 80% of the religious persecution in the world is directed against the Christian community. Something like uh, uh, 200 million Christians are facing direct and hostile persecution in around 35 countries. In fact, even more widely, Christians are facing harassment, a low-level order of persecution, in nearly 130 countries around the world. Over two-thirds of the countries of the world, Christian believers are facing this kind of pressure. And it's exactly the same for us in the West, isn't it? Opposition, hostility towards the Christian faith is found almost everywhere. And then individually, I suspect all of us feel this pressure. We know it is going to be tough 
to continue to live for Jesus Christ and to uphold the gospel. So in our Christian struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, this core theme of Nehemiah chapter 2, I think, really needs to be uppermost in our minds. The critical turning point, the change of perspective for God's people in Jerusalem was to see that God was in control. Verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. And Nehemiah already knew this because Artaxerxes had reversed his foreign policy. Nehemiah knew that was God's hand. And now the people believed God is involved in this entire project. We can trust God's control. So in our Christian lives, when we are facing pressures of all kinds, disappointments sometimes in our work or our families, the struggles personally, the uncertainties about our future, as Dan said last week, maybe the discouragements of the Christian community, we know we also face an uphill struggle. Uh, Evangelicals like us, that's Bible people and gospel people, are now 3% of the British population. So it's a very small minority. And it's not easy for us to sustain a commitment to Christ, to the gospel, to holding on to the truth of God's word. We will only do that if we have the perspective of what this chapter says. The thing that makes the difference for Nehemiah and for his team is their understanding of who God is. And in particular, two things. His transcendence and his imminence. So first of all, his transcendence, verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. But then also, his imminence, Verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. Uh, For many years, I've loved a little phrase, uh, which is uh, there on the screen. It's from Raymond Brown. There is an eternal throne as well as a loving hand. If we hold those two ideas in our minds, whatever it is we're facing, it's hugely encouraging. It is the focus that we need whenever we are also facing challenges of all kinds. A sovereign Lord and a loving Father. An eternal throne, a loving hand. Well, these were the priorities which shaped Nehemiah's attitudes and actions, and we need them as well. Here they are, depending on God's help, waiting for God's time, and trusting in God's control. It was the great uh, missionary pioneer, Hudson Taylor, who uh, worked in Japan, who had the right priority. This is what he said. It is not great faith we need, so much as faith in a great God. Amen.